Good morning again. It's a privilege to be able to proclaim God's word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's word with you, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7? Hebrews chapter 7. As we've already mentioned, today is Ascension Sunday. And this morning, our sermon, we are going to be looking at Jesus' ascension into heaven. There are a number of things that we could focus on and meditate on in Jesus' ascension. We've already seen this morning in our confession of faith that the ascension is an action that leads to other actions of Jesus. One author calls the ascension the linchpin of Christ's saving work, bridging Christ's earthly and heavenly ministries. We have a tendency to think, only of Jesus' work on earth, and then to assume that he is just relaxing or lounging in heaven until his second coming, waiting for his return. But that's not at all what the Bible teaches. Instead, it teaches that Jesus is still active in his heavenly ministry toward us. And it primarily talks about that heavenly ministry of Jesus in three ways. His kingly reign his sending of the Spirit, and his intercession. Jesus' ascension is his exaltation as a king. After his resurrection, Jesus is raised up to sit on his throne as the sovereign king over the church and over the world. The Bible also talks about Jesus' ascension as the clearing ground so that he may send his Holy Spirit upon the church. That's what he, we're going to talk about next week in our sermon. But this week, we're going to focus on the third part of Jesus' heavenly work that the Bible talks about, and that is his intercession. When Jesus was raised up to heaven in the ascension, he began his work of praying or interceding for his people, day and night, without ceasing. That's what we're going to meditate on from God's word this morning, Jesus' intercession for us. Our readings are going to be a couple of passages from Hebrews 7, 8, and 9. If you remember the book of Hebrews, you remember that it is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience, and the author is arguing for why Jesus is greater than anything that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had to offer Because, the argument goes, it was all a shadow. It was all a copy. It was all a shadow that pointed forward to him. And in these passages, the author looks at the Old Covenant tabernacle and priests and sacrifices and points to the New Covenant promise of Jesus, the New Covenant work of Jesus as our true and better high priest, the one who is continually interceding for his people in order to bring us an eternal salvation. So let's look now to Jesus, our great high priest. But before we do, let's go to our Father in prayer and ask that he would soften our hearts and that he would open our ears to hear his word. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit, 
Your people are listening. Amen. We're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, and we'll go through verse 8 of chapter, or rather verse 5 of chapter 8, and then we'll skip down to chapter 9, a couple of sections. If you want to follow along easier, you can follow along on the screen. So we'll begin in verse 23 of chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, on our behalf. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to work through these passages and this topic in general of the intercession of Christ by asking three questions. First, what is Jesus' intercession? Second, why is it necessary? Why do we need it? And then thirdly, how does Jesus' intercession benefit us? We're going to look towards some application for us in the Christian life. Hebrews 7.25, which we just read, said that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He is continually in heaven interceding for us. But what does that mean? What is the intercession of Jesus? Generally, intercession is just prayer on behalf of someone else. I just prayed a prayer of intercession. It's lifting up others in your prayer. We know that when someone intercedes for you, they are intervening for you or pleading your case before someone else. And so this doctrine teaches us that Jesus is continually praying for believers in heaven. J. 
Just as he prayed for us on earth, so he is still doing that in heaven. Day and night, Jesus is before the Father praying for you and for me. But when the Bible talks about the intercession of Jesus, it is also talking about a more specific kind of prayer. It's talking about Jesus praying for you with regard to your sins. This doesn't just come from the word intercession, but from the way that the word is used in Scripture. As we just saw in Hebrews, Jesus intercedes for us as our high priest. And so if we're going to understand the significance of Jesus' intercession, we are going to need a little Old Testament refresh on the work of the high priest and the sacrifices that he offered. When God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai, he included laws about sacrifices for sins. In other words, here is the law, and here is what you're supposed to do when you break the law. Laws and then laws about sacrifices. And he commanded Israel to build a tabernacle, which is where those sacrifices would be made. If you remember the format of the tabernacle, it was made of concentric spaces. So the innermost place was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, which is where the presence of God resided. There was a curtain separating that space, the holy of holies, from the next space out, the holy place. So you have the holy of holies or the most holy place, and then out from that you have the holy place. And then outside of that was the courtyard. And the courtyard was where the bronze altar sat, which is where the priests would make sacrifices for the sins of the people. So you have the courtyard, then the holy place, then the most holy place. And in Leviticus 16, we read that there was one day every year when the high priest would make sacrifice to cover the sins of all the people. This was called the Day of Atonement. Now, a lot of things happen on the Day of Atonement, but one important thing that happened was that the sacrifice had two parts. The first part was the making of the sacrifice itself, the killing of the animal. This is the part that we would always remember. The priest would take an animal and kill it on the bronze altar for the sins of the people. But that isn't the only thing that he was commanded to do. After he made the sacrifice, God also commanded him to present the sacrifice before God. So he kills the animal on the altar in the courtyard, and then he takes the blood of the animal, and he goes from the courtyard into the holy place, into the most holy place, before the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of the Father. And there, he presents the sacrifice. He presents the blood of the sacrifice. This is a proof that the sacrifice has taken place. The sins of the people have been paid for. It's as if the priest was saying, here it is. The sacrifice has been made. Their sins have been paid for. There is nothing else for them to do. This is what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about the intercession of Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest who has gone into the very throne room of God and he is presenting before him his once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, saying, it is finished. 
The sacrifice has been made. Their sins have been paid for. There is nothing left for them to do. The author of Hebrews is telling us that everything about Jesus' sacrifice and everything about his intercession is better than the priests of the Old Testament. The Old Testament tabernacle was nothing more than an earthly copy of the heavenly throne room. If you read through Exodus 25 and 26 and 27 as they are constructing the tabernacle, you'll see this phrase, this refrain that continues, make it just like what you see on the mountain. God has shown Moses the heavenly throne room and tells him how to construct the tabernacle as a copy of that heavenly throne room. And so Jesus isn't like the old high priest who would go into the pretend model of God's throne room. No, he has gone into the real place. In his ascension, he passed through the curtain of the clouds and has gone into heaven itself to present his sacrifice before the presence of God. But the other reason why Jesus' intercession is better is because his sacrifice is better. He isn't presenting the blood of goats and calves. He is presenting his own unstained and innocent blood. And those sacrifices had to be made year after year, but Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Because he is the perfect son of God, his once sacrifice paid for the sins of all his people, past, present, and future. And so the sacrifice is once and for all, but the intercession is continuous. Do you get the picture? The merit, the efficacy, the power of Jesus' sacrifice never runs out. Day and night, from the day of his ascension until the day of his return, he is before the presence of the Father, pleading the worth of his sacrifice. The debt has been paid. My sacrifice is enough. There is nothing left for them to do. Now let me ask you, why is this good news? Why is it good news that Jesus didn't stop ministering to you after his death and resurrection, but continues to present his sacrifice to the Father? Well, the reason why it's good news is because you and I still sin. We know that even after you become a Christian, you still sin. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, you are made into a new creation. Your heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are no longer a slave to sin. But you still sin. Alistair Begg describes our salvation by saying that in Christ, we have been saved from sin's penalty. We are being saved from sin's power. And we one day will be saved from its presence. If you follow that, we are still in the middle stage. We have been saved from sin's penalty, but we are more and more being saved from its power. But that is never perfect in this life. As long as we have a confession of sin in this church, you will still have sins to confess. Our assurance of pardon today from 1 John 1 says as much. Talking to Christians, the Apostle John says, If we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says, you are a liar if you're a Christian and you say that you don't sin anymore. Our Christian life is a war between the new creation Christ has made us into and the lingering presence of sin. So what happens when after we become a Christian, we sin again? Do we restart the whole process? We know that our sins were forgiven by Jesus, but what about the new ones? Do we have to become a Christian all over again? Do we go from being saved to unsaved and have to come to Christ all over again? No. Read the rest of the assurance of pardon. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Jesus longs for us to be holy. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This advocacy is Jesus' intercession for us. This is how Jesus takes his past work on the cross and applies it to you again and again in the present moment. This is why he is able to save to the uttermost. Because just as we sin again and again, so Jesus stands to intercede for us, to plead the merit of his sacrifice for us again and again. So that's what the intercession of Jesus is. It's his continual presentation of his sacrifice in heaven on behalf of believers. And that's why we need it. Because even after we become Christians, we continue to sin and continue to need forgiveness. In the time we have left, I want to look at some ways that you can apply Jesus' intercession to your own heart and to your own life as a Christian. And there are three brief ways I want us to see that Jesus' intercession is an indispensable doctrine for all Christians. First, Jesus' intercession is one proof that he hasn't forgotten you. The Christian life can feel lonely, especially in the midst of sin or suffering. Our temptation is often to think that Jesus has abandoned us. And the ascension can even make us think like that. It can give us that impression. Look, there he goes, off into heaven, leaving me behind. Common experience with each other also tells us something similar. It gives us that same impression. It's pretty common that when someone is low, in a low position, a position of humiliation, they're attentive to you. They care about you. They remember you. But as soon as they're promoted, as soon as they make it big, in scriptural terms, as soon as they are exalted to a position of glory, they forget about you. This is a pretty common story for people who make it big. They forget about all the little people who they used to care about. Brothers and sisters, that is not true of Jesus. His exaltation didn't make him forget you or care less about you. He didn't abandon you or forsake you when he sat down on his heavenly throne. No, the intercession of Jesus teaches us exactly the opposite. The good news isn't that your name is written on some heavenly document piled up in a corner. If you are a Christian, your name is on the lips of Jesus 
day and night, hour by hour, without ceasing. He isn't pleading for some unknown abstract group of people who might one day end up saved. He is pleading particularly for his elect. His sacrifice and his intercession by necessity are for the exact same people. And so if you're a Christian, Jesus pleads for you. He sees your sin and your trials and your sufferings. And he pleads to the Father for you. He pleads that your faith may not fail in the midst of your trials. That no one would snatch you out of his hand. That the good work he began in you would be brought to completion. Can you just stop and think about that for a moment? Jesus, the eternal Son of God who has defeated sin and Satan and death, he never stops praying for you. The Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane once said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Brother, sister, Jesus has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. Your name and your cares and your burdens are continually on his lips. Second, Jesus' intercession is proof of his continual compassion for you. Hebrews 5 says that since Jesus is both God and man, he is a high priest who knows our weaknesses. And so verse 2 says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Jesus is both God and man. That means that he knows human frailty, but it also means that he is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows your every thought, your every action, your every motive. He sees everything you do. And for Christians, those who have Jesus as their high priest, instead of causing him to recoil or to withdraw from you, those things cause Jesus to move toward you. Are you an ignorant or wayward Christian? Jesus deals gently with you. Are you a sinner who is poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore? Jesus stands ready to receive you, full of pity, love, and power. Christian, every time you sin, Jesus, the omniscient Son of God, stands to plead afresh the merits of his blood. As Hebrews 7 says, this is what he lives for. This is the whole point of him being in heaven, is to make intercession for you in the midst of your sins. He deals gently with the ignorant and wayward. The third way that we can apply Jesus' intercession to our Christian life is to see that his intercession is exactly what we need in the moments where we feel condemned for our sin. The two places where the Bible uses the word intercession or interceding about Jesus are in Hebrews 7.25, which we just looked at, 
and Romans 8.34. In Romans 8, Paul is in the midst of explaining why Christians can be assured that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Jesus. And beginning in verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We need to pay careful attention to Paul's logic and not just assume the answer is no one to every one of those questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer to that one is no one. No one can effectively oppose you if God is on your side. But the next pair of questions doesn't have the same answer. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And who is to condemn? We are tempted to answer these in the same way. No one can condemn me if I'm a Christian. But that's not the answer Paul gives. There is someone who has the right to condemn you. Look at his answer to the question. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true judge of all the earth. He does have the right to condemn you. Not your friends, not your co-workers, or your family members, or the people on the internet. Not even you have the right to condemn yourself. Jesus is the one person in all the universe who has the right to bring just condemnation on you. But look at what Paul says about the one person who has the right to condemn you. What has he done and what is he doing? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Think about your sins for a moment. Think about the moments in your life when you felt the crushing weight of condemnation for your sin. It may have been lying, or stealing, or adultery, or abortion, or lust or violent anger. I must tell you that if you are not a Christian and you do not trust in Jesus as your Savior, He will stand as your judge and condemn you in your sin. But if you are a Christian, if you do trust in Jesus, then what this verse tells you is that the moment of your absolute worst, of your greatest sins, when every voice in your head was screaming condemnation and judgment, at that very moment, Jesus Christ was standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. The only one in the universe who has the right to condemn you was and is standing and presenting the blood of his sacrifice on the cross 
and saying, this is enough. This is enough. The sacrifice has been made. There is no more condemnation for them. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus paid the penalty for your sins once and for all in his death on the cross. He went to the grave to take on death for us, but rose again from the dead to new life. After this, he ascended into heaven to be exalted as a king to his throne. But Jesus the king is also Jesus the priest. And as our priest, he stands night and day in the presence of his father, pleading the merits of his blood in the face of your sins. This and only this can bring the assurance and comfort and confidence you so need and long for. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. In the midst of your sin, look to Jesus. In the midst of your trials, look to him. Draw near to God through him because he is able to save you to the uttermost since he always lives to make intercession for you. Would you all pray with me? Father, what can we say but thank you? Thank you that though we are undeserving sinners, you sent your son to die the death that we did deserve so that we might go free. Thank you that you have called us to eternal life in Jesus. And thank you that though we fail, though we continue to sin in this life, Jesus continues to plead the merits of his blood on our behalf. Lord, we pray that we would live in the reality of that accomplished salvation. Give us eyes to see and to know and to long for Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.